Chapter Five of Bonne Marie. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Susanna Mason. Bonne Marie: A Tale of Normandy and Paris by Henry Jeville, translated by Mary Neal Sherwood. Chapter Five: The Night After. The evening of the same day, Bonne Marie came home from her long exertion, fatigued and taciturn. Her morning gaiety had all passed away, and, as often happens with young girls after having laughed until the tears came, the tears now came without laughing. It was indeed hard for a spirit as ambitious as her own to conquer her pride and go to market like any simple peasant lass. After her recent dreams of luxury and wealth, it seemed to her especially painful to return to her home on foot, bowed under the burden of a basket filled with provisions, accompanied by a group of the young girls of Amonville, who were totally uneducated, almost uncivilized in whose conversations she could feel no interest, and by whom it was perfectly easy for her to see she was neither loved nor liked. It was then with a very full heart that Bonne Marie ascended to her chamber, after having said good night to her father, who kissed her with more than his wonted tenderness. The old smuggler had done his best to make his child happy, and if he had not succeeded, what was there left for him to do? "'Dear little girl,' said the old man to himself as he listened to his child's footsteps on the uncarpeted stairs, you shall be happy in this world if I can manage it. He waited another hour, and listened to satisfy himself fully that his daughter was asleep. Then he took from a corner a stout oaken staff, without which he never went from the house. Then, going to his wardrobe, he took out something that he had in his pocket, extinguished his lamp, and went out softly. Now, he said with his customary knowing laugh, everybody's asleep in the moon alone. He interrupted himself, for the, all the world was not asleep. Lights glittered here and there in the windows of some of the houses, and a little further on was the Coast Guard station, through those shutters of which came a ray from a shaded lamp. Beslin bowed mockingly toward this lamp. "'Perhaps you will find out some fine day, my boys,' he said aloud, "'that Father Beslin is not so old, but that he can do some mischief yet.' He went to the left and along the shore, sheltered by low stone walls which protected the low-lying meadows from the encroaching tide. Walls which, however, there were by no means high enough to prevent the same meadows from being flooded when the sea ran very high under a stiff northerly breeze. His step resounded for a moment on the flat stones on which he trod, and then he stood still and listened. The regular ripple of the incoming tide, the dash of the waves against the rocks which were covered and left bare twice each day by the water, that was all he heard. No other sound save this monotonous beat of the pulse of a great ocean and the charge of the indefatigable waters against the rocks which stood firm against their assaults. Beslin walked on, but the noise of his boots on the shingle was so loud that he went down to the sand and entered the water ankle-deep, following the shore through the white foam. The night was very dark, a soft northeasterly breeze, so light on land that it scarcely lifted the leaves of the trees, drove the sea against the belt of reefs which protected the hog better than the cannons of any forts could have done. Again and again did Beslin stop and listen, still no sound but the ripple and the dash. The old smuggler resumed his nocturnal walk. He reached a slight eminence, an island almost connected with the land by a narrow tongue of earth, nearly eaten away by the water, and often entirely submerged. On this spot were the ruins of an old coast guard station, long since abandoned. The gulls and cormorants were now its only visitors, and these birds took refuge there on many a stormy night when the waves washed over the rocks which were their habitual homes. "'It was not a bad idea,' muttered the hardy adventurer, "'to hide our goods in a very spot that belonged to the government. "'They never would get the idea through their stupid brains.' "'He shrugged his shoulders as he thought of Chamelot. 
He then went around the abandoned station and knocked several sharp blows in quick succession on the stones. A head peered cautiously out, and then another. "'It is I,' he said, quite aloud, without the precaution of lowering his voice. "'Come, my boys, the night is very dark, and you can keep close to the rocks, walking through the water. Remember what the sailors say. The salt water never wets anyone.' Setting the example himself, he lifted a bundle on his shoulders, and entered the water until it came as high as his waist, and then stole along behind the rocks with the greatest caution. Two men, more heavily burdened than he, followed him closely. It was necessary to make a circuit of at least half a league, all the time beaten against by the rising tide. Every few minutes a hole presented itself which it was necessary to step over. Old Beslin had gone over this route over and over again, and without the smallest fear of being heard, as he trusted to his voice being covered by the roar of the sea. He gave his companions directions so precise that they were really astonished. "'Have you eyes in your ankles, then, Father Beslin?' asked one of his companions, a newcomer in that district. They were resting at the moment behind a large rock which prevented them from seeing the shore. "'Yes, my boy,' answered the old smuggler, as he eased the burden on his shoulders and started again. "'I have eyes in my ankles, and at the ends of my fingers also. You see, a man must know pretty well what he is about before he undertakes to lead others.' They had now reached a spot where the high rocks ended, and low ones, covered with wet seaweed, took their place. They would now be obliged to cross the beach on their hands and knees, keeping as flat to the ground as possible, and try to reach the fields beyond. "'Now look out,' said Beslin in a low voice. "'This is the most dangerous place we have.' Just as he spoke, and was about to leave the protecting shadow of the last high rock, an odd metallic sound was heard on the beach. "'The ghost card.' said Beslin, between his teeth. I felt sure that that beast of a Chamelot had followed me. "'Who goes there?' cried a voice not ten steps off. Three smugglers stood huddled together. The tide was still coming in, and the foam touched their lips. "'Who goes there?' repeated the Coast Guard. "'Father Beslin breathed, rather than whispered, one of the men. "'I'm losing my foothold. The tide is too strong for me.' The guards were talking together, and they moved a few steps away. "'Are they going?' said one of the smugglers. "'No,' answered Beslin. "'They are not going. They intend to climb over that rock. You go back, and I will keep them here. After you have gone thirty or forty yards, cross the beach boldly, and strike into the fields. They will never think of looking for you there.' "'But you, Father Beslin?' asked the others, with some anxiety. "'I? Why, I shall say that I am taking a walk for my health. They may believe me, or they may not. That is their own affair. Go on, my children, and take care, and keep the goods dry.' As the tide was still coming in, there was not much time for hesitation. The two men reluctantly beat a retreat, keeping behind the rocks and obeying the directions given them by their guide. The Coast Guard were at a loss of what to do. They had returned to the beach, and the quick, sharp sound of their guns rang against the pebbles. Beslin held his breath and his ground. Unfortunately, a wave rising a little higher than the others swept off his hat, which stood out clearly on the white foam that broke on the beach. "'There is certainly someone there,' muttered one of the guard. No, answered Chamelot, I do not think so, but we can easily ascertain. Another foaming wave struck against the rock behind Beslin, and threw his figure out in strong relief against its whiteness. If there is no one, replied the man, then it is a seabird for something moved. Look there. Beslin drew back a little. Fire, cried Chamelot, not, however, without some repugnance. A flash of light, a quick report. Beslin was thrown by the next wave almost at the feet of the man who had often sat at his table. 
The Coast Guards turned their dark lanterns upon the body and recognized Beslin. A ball had gone through his forehead. A sigh and a shiver, and all was over. End of chapter 5 Recording by Susanna Mason